sure is good to, to be able to be gathered together this Sunday morning to assemble in the way that we are today to offer our heartfelt worship under the God of heaven. As you perhaps have already appreciated, so many blessings have come our way. And I'd like to begin the lesson, if I could, with just a brief appreciation of the title, The Resurrection of Christ. Now, I know that that is not a, an unexpected thing, I guess, for a Sunday like this one, being Easter Sunday. But this next slide will be one that I hope will at least promote us and prompt us in some interesting appreciations. Every one of us know that with today being that calendar day called Easter, there are many things that the religious world has chosen to cast a spotlight on today. And this day, above many others, is a very significant one for many people. But you and I, of course, are anchored in the truth of God, and we elevate every Sunday. The Bible does not endorse elevating one Sunday above another one. Although it would have been true, as you can see on that slide, you and I know by the calendar, day before yesterday, was what many people call Good Friday. Jesus wasn't crucified on Friday. However, the religious world has come to call that about our Lord died on Thursday. And yet, we know that so many have drawn attention to that day. And then, of course, today as being Easter. The word Easter doesn't occur in that connection in the Bible. You and I, again, celebrate every first day of the week. Most years, there's 52 of them. Sometimes there's 53. And we honor them. We adore them. We appreciate them. And we always look forward to coming together to worship on every one of them. As you keep all of that in mind, though, I did want us to consider a lesson touching what many in the world will celebrate today, the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, that's the title. You may notice that when Joe read from Acts 2, verses 30 and 31, that very phrase occurs. I'd like to read that again. Acts chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath, to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Would you invest a few moments today, this Sunday, this Lord's Day, to giving thought to the resurrection of Christ? What's involved in the consideration of it, and why was it so critical to Peter's sermon? And what might it certainly mean to you and to me today? No wonder, as you proceed through that slide, you'll note near the bottom, I would invite you today to put with me, in many ways at least, a figurative appreciation. If you and I put on glasses and look at this through first century eyes, what are we going to see? What would we appreciate about the resurrection of Christ? Let me suggest we first do that by reflecting on the day of Pentecost. And that will be the first part of the lesson this morning. Upon so doing, we then will then extract a handful of lessons that you and I can utilize to indelibly imprint in our heart some great truths about the day of Pentecost and specifically the resurrection of Christ. As we do all of that, let's begin like this. I mentioned it a moment ago, but it now occupies a central role in this slide. Our Lord died on Thursday afternoon. He had come into Jerusalem on that Sunday, riding, of course, on the back of a, of a colt. 
He taught and He preached and He indelibly imprinted in their heart the nature of the kingdom of God. It was during that time frame He had asserted, My kingdom is not of this world, He said, John 18, 36. And yet, on Thursday afternoon, He died. Now it's true, they had nailed Him to the cross at 9 o'clock that morning. But yet at about 3 in the afternoon, in what you and I would call the ninth hour, our Savior breathed His last. He gave up the ghost in the language of John 19, verse 30. Right before that, He had said, It is finished. The plan and the reason He had come to this earth was now done. And He gave His life so that all who would faithfully obey Him would have the opportunity of forgiveness of sins and they would be able to enter into heaven eternally. But you'll notice that as all that happened, Again, that was Thursday. You and I might wonder, what about the day following on Friday and the day following on Saturday? Those were holy days. Remember, the gospel accounts remind us of the fact that as they were making ready for those days, they had to get everything done. They were even making sure that those that were crucified were dead. By the time the day closed on Thursday, remember, they came to break the legs of all of those that weren't so they would quickly go ahead and die. But they didn't have to do that to Jesus. He's already dead. But you'll notice those holy days are at least mentioned in John 19, 31. And you and I, of course, have very little record of the main events of those days. The Jews rested. They were holy days without work. But you and I quickly note this. Suddenly, you and I now encounter the next major Jewish festival was Pentecost. It's true that our Lord had been crucified at the Passover season. That would have occurred in late March or early April by our calendar. The next major festival was Pentecost. Fifty days later. Fifty days later. That would have taken us to either late May or early June, according to our calendar. And you and I notice this. God had dictated in the Old Testament how that count was to happen. The Jews didn't just figure this out on their own. From the Saturday, which of course was the Sabbath of the Passover, they were to count 50 days. 50. That's seven weeks plus one more day. That would always mean the Pentecost fell on Sunday. It could not fall on any other day. The Pentecost fell on Sunday. Now you might take note, this was only a one-day celebration. With regard to, let's say, the Passover, it was immediately followed by a seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. Later in the year, the Feast of Ingathering was a seven-day feast, but Pentecost was different. It was one day, one day, and it was Sunday. And so, as you and I turn to the book of Acts, we find in chapter number 2, verse number 1, that it reads like this, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Did you note the emphasis? The day. It was not a week-long celebration. It was one day of Pentecost, and the Jews had assembled to observe this decreed festival based on the ways of God. As they were assembled on this occasion, you and I noticed the fantastic events that took place that day. Let me read Again, starting now in verse 2. So, with our knowledge of the day of Pentecost, it says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. 
And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now that pronoun they refers to the apostles in that context. And so you and I notice that the apostles being now here and assembled, they were indelibly given the opportunity and power to speak in languages they had never learned. Remember now, this was concerning the Pentecost. Verse number 5 says, There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. There was a large group of people assembled at the Pentecost because that's what God told them in the Old Testament to do. And so there were likely hundreds of thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost. You'll notice on that slide, a very large multitude. In fact, as you look at verses 9 through 11, I count 17 nationalities of people were here and assembled. People from in some places a very large distance away, they had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost. But as you and I close that slide, you'll notice what was now going to be incredibly prominent was this. Verse number 14 says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. To this large audience, Peter starts preaching. He begins to celebrate and to, in fact, set before them the marvelous wonder of what was now occurring. Did you notice he said, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, everybody that's here for this occasion, he wrote, what is happening is this. These men that are speaking in languages, they aren't drunken like you may be supposing. There were some who, hearing those events, charged those men to be drunken. Peter said, I'm telling you, that's not what it is. This is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. 800 years earlier, the prophet Joel had foretold this was going to happen. And he set forth the fact that when it did, there will be those who shall in fact speak the marvelous wonder of God. Without calling your attention to all of it, could I direct your attention to verse 21? In quoting for the book of Joel, he also included this. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is going to involve salvation. This is going to involve being right with God. What we are speaking to you today will be a critical element in your eternity in terms of heaven. With all of that said, let's close that slide and point out one of the grand things that Peter proclaimed that day. Isn't it fascinating that he spoke about things like Jesus' death... He spoke about things such as the fact He was buried, but He also made this observation, Jesus was raised. He spoke factually about the resurrection of Christ. I would invite you to think about that with me for the next few minutes. It really is astounding. Astounding from several vantage points. And the first one may I suggest to you is this. Peter again noted in a very factual way that Jesus died. Now to that group that was assembled, this was not a shock or a surprise to them. They had been there seven weeks earlier when it happened. Remember, Jesus died at the Passover season, and every Jew that could assembled at the Passover to celebrate it. 
They had been there in Jerusalem. And so, notice with me the language of verses 22, 23, and 24. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Would you be impressed with the boldness of Peter? That's the very people that had put Jesus to death seven weeks earlier, and he stood before them and said, you killed him. I don't know that I'd have had the courage to do it, but he did. He was prompted by the words of the Holy Spirit and moved and compelled by the great revelation of God, and he stood before that very same people and said, by wicked hands you killed him. You put to death the Son of God. Now, I would ask you to notice at the top of that slide, that took boldness, it took courage, it took conviction. Peter knew very well, of course, that Jesus was put to death, and so too did his audience. But Peter wasn't finished. Look at verse 24. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now jump to verse number 32. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. Now may I again ask you to notice, the Lord's death was not a matter of controversy. They had seen Him die. They had seen Him nailed to the cross. But Peter in the very next word said, He's alive again. God raised Him up. We all are witnesses. Now put yourself again in the consideration of that audience. There a group of people, seven weeks earlier, they'd seen him die. And Peter said, we've also seen him alive. The, death, the grave wasn't able to hold him. He was resurrected. Now I would point out to you very quickly that that was a forceful statement. A statement so majestic and so mighty. Because isn't it true that you and I are not accustomed to seeing anything like this? It's pretty accustomed to see things die. We all have to go to the funeral home on occasion. Someone we love, a friend, a neighbor, an acquaintance, someone that we cherish highly, they pass from this life and we know all about it. But how often have you ever visited the cemetery and found the grave empty? Not a one of us have ever done it. Because we know that we place those bodies into the bosom of earth, and there they remain and they decay, returning to the dust out of which they were made. But yet Peter, in that same breath, stood up before that group and said, He is not in the grave anymore. God raised him up and we have seen him. That took courage. That took conviction. And Peter, you see, was absolutely sure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at some of these additional verses. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and following, later on this same spokesman would again later say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by, note it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I have a lively hope because He was resurrected. We have a hope of a sure and peaceful life beyond this one, if we'll be faithful. 
the resurrection of Christ invites us to note this. Peter, notice in verse number 32, used the word witnesses. I realize on Wednesday night we devoted a fair amount of attention a few months ago to 1 Corinthians 15 in which we noted a large group of witnesses, names, and references to many who saw the resurrected Lord. Would you please keep that in mind? As you and I recognize, the resurrection was not just a hearsay matter on the part of one man, namely Peter. He said, we all are witnesses. Every one of the apostles had seen him. Notice there were many others like Mary Magdalene who saw him. There were others like 500 brethren who were assembled at one place who saw him. May I suggest the resurrected Jesus, there were many who were privileged to see him. Point number one then has been this. This was an amazing declaration. And Peter had the courage, the conviction, and the boldness to stand before that very group that had put Jesus to death and said, this Jesus that you killed, he's alive again. We've seen him. Point number two. In addition to the reality of the resurrection, I would like to use that in connection to the following. Would you again remember those to whom Peter made this statement? They were Jews. Note again verse number 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And then verse 5. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. These were people who were acquainted with the Old Testament. They knew about God's commandment to assemble in Jerusalem for those that were Hebrews, and thus they had been there at the Passover. And now, seven weeks later, they were there again for the Pentecost. That's going to be significant for this reason. Note the following statement. That means the very people who were therein listening to Peter in his sermon were the same ones that had been there seven weeks earlier. And therefore, note the number of days. I've counted them for us. Jesus would have been put to death 52 days prior to the events of Acts chapter 2. Not only that, He was raised 49 days prior to this. These very people, they had known what happened seven weeks earlier. Their memories were better than that. They knew about the Lord's death. They also knew about the record, the events, the hearsay, if you please, relative to His resurrection. I would ask you to notice then that that fewness in terms of number of days, quite often you and I are very appreciative of what happens. Can you remember what happened in general seven weeks ago? Most of the time, if it's a major event, we'd remember it well. Put that in the context of this chapter. When Peter told those people, you put him to death, none of them argued with him because they knew they had done it. They knew exactly what had happened seven weeks earlier. But did you notice he also said God raised him up and it happened 49 days ago and not a one of them questioned it. Now there were things they did raise concerning the matters of that sermon, but they never said, hold it, Peter. You said they raised him, but he hadn't been raised. Come on, let's go to the tomb. I'll show you. Not a one of them said that. They knew it. The resurrection of Christ was something at least they had appreciated was, had been shared. I suspect many of them had talked with people like Mary Magdalene or others who said, Look, I saw the risen Lord. Jesus is no longer in that tomb. 
keeping all that in mind, look at how that slide rolls forward. That's going to be a critical matter in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse number 3, could I invite your attention to the inspired writings? To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. That word he is referring to Jesus. Jesus showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. It goes on to say, being seen of them forty days. So after the Lord was resurrected for a period of 40 days, He showed Himself to the apostles, He showed Himself to others, and they saw Him. Therefore, when we arrive at Pentecost, remember, nobody challenges Peter. Look, he isn't raised. Not a single person challenged him on that point. They recognized the statements that had been made, and it leads us to note there had been a dramatic amount of discussion about this point. Could I call your attention to Luke 24? In that chapter, without reading all of that lengthy record, there were two disciples traveling the road to Emmaus. And you might remember if I could just select a handful of the verses. Luke 24, beginning in verse number 17. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another, as ye walk and are sad? Let me fill in one or two thoughts. As these disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus, they were having conversation. They were talking about Jesus, His crucifixion, and His supposed resurrection. And as they were talking, they were discussing these points. Jesus joined Himself to them, but they didn't know who He was. And the Lord asked them in verse 17, What is this you're talking about? And then verse number 18 proceeds to answer like this. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass here in these days? And then Jesus said, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned, to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Can you imagine the discussion? Jesus again asked, What things? And they talked about Jesus. The point is, there was much discussion about the resurrection. Let's close that slide like this. May I say then that as Peter captured their attention and spoke with them that day, he highlighted the remarkable reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the grave wasn't able to hold Him, that in the power and grandeur of God He came forth. Point number three. In addition to those two, did you notice one of the great elements of Peter's sermon that day? Turning back to Acts chapter 2, several times during the course of that chapter, he brings to our attention Old Testament prophecy. Let me read you the verses, starting in verse number 25. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. 
because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Let's stop right there. Peter quotes from David something that David had written. He dips back into Old Testament history and said, Look, all you Jews on Pentecost, the fact that God raised up Christ, the fact that He was resurrected, it's not as though this was an entirely new and unknown thing to God. He foretold it. He revealed it to David a thousand years ago it was going to happen. And he quoted from Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verses 9 and following. Now the language is very clear. It says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Now when David made that statement, he was writing history before it happened. He wrote about the resurrection of the Christ. And did you notice, later Peter would refer to it again. In verse number 30 and 31, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this, before spake of the resurrection of Christ. I hope you and I are impressed that when David wrote that back in Psalm 16, as you and I would read it, maybe we think David's talking about himself. Maybe David's referring to an event he would experience in life, but it isn't so. What David was writing was a statement concerning what would be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How beautiful. How utterly fascinating. No wonder in light of those things. Maybe this is an opportunity to note some interesting language. It says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. The actual Greek word that appears there is the word Hades. And our King James translators have used the word hell in its place, but the actual word is not Gehenna hell, the eternal place of fire and brimstone. This rather is an intermediate abode of the soul. When you and I die, when we leave this earth, our spirit goes somewhere because it departs the body, James 2.26 Well, the place it goes to is a place the Bible will call Hades. And that's where the Lord's Spirit went. When He died at 3 o'clock on that Thursday afternoon, His Spirit left His body and it went to Hades, the Hadean realm. But David had said a thousand years earlier, Thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades. And sure enough, on that Sunday morning, the great power of God called His Spirit back out of Hades and gave it an immortal body a body that the apostles were blessed to recognize in many ways. The resurrection of Christ has led us to point three. The Old Testament prophecy was very specific, and that prophecy was majestic indeed. Could I invite your attention to another statement about the wording? Back to verse 31. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ... That word resurrection, we've mentioned it today, but I've never defined it. I think we all know what it means. It means to stand up again. That's literally what the word conveys, to stand up again. And when you and I place a body in a casket, we've never seen it stand up again. But the Lord's did. They placed that body in that tomb. Joseph of Arimathea together with Nicodemus did it. And he was buried 
But yet on that Sunday morning they came to the tomb. The stone had been rolled away and the body wasn't there. The grave clothes were, but the body wasn't. He had stood up again. He had been resurrected. He was raised. And there were angelic visitors that were there confirming the fact. You seek Jesus, they said, but He's not here. He isn't here. And so isn't it true that the Old Testament prophecy that David had written, as it spake about the resurrection of Christ, he would stand up again. Aren't you and I a bit excited about that thought? Let's close that slide like this. Peter makes a dramatic presentation. David, of course, was highly regarded by the Jews. He was probably one of their favorite kings. He was such a great man. He was victorious, leading the people of Israel, victors over their enemies. And so the people of Israel looked up to him. Did you note verse number 29? Listen to what Peter says about David. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Peter says, I can take you to where David's buried. I can take you to where the bones are. And they're still there. But that's not true of Jesus. You see, the grave couldn't hold him. He has stood up again. He's been resurrected. And therefore, Peter lifted so highly the reality of who Jesus is over against who David was. David was a great man in many ways, but he wasn't the Son of God. He was a great man in many ways, but he was not the Messiah. But the very one that they on Pentecost had put to death, and who God had now raised, and who had stood up again, he was the one now reigning on the throne of Israel. Point number four. As we have looked at all of these, may I suggest what a remarkable hope that Peter gave to those people and what a remarkable hope is also given to you and me because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As you and I develop some of these points, let's begin like this. The language is also very clear in verse number 30 that again was read earlier in our hearing. Jesus was stood up again. He was raised to sit on David's throne. You might want to underline that in your Bible. He was raised to reign. I know that there are many in our world who are under the illusion that He was raised, but that there's a long time until a millennium when He begins to reign. That isn't so. He was raised to reign according to Acts 2 verse 30. He was raised on that Sunday morning, and as you and I have begun to count it, 49 days later He began reigning over the kingdom. Seven weeks exactly. Now, often in the Bible, the number seven has a great significance, a word of perfection, a number of completeness, seven weeks between the day He was raised and the day He started reigning over His kingdom because the kingdom was established that day. How beautiful, how remarkable. And therefore, as you and I note this, this is the very same thing that had been told to Mary when Gabriel appeared to her and said, You're going to bring forth a child. And she said, How can this be? I know not a man. Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. And the baby boy you'll bring forth will reign over the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Luke chapter 2, verses 32 and Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. 
Jesus was raised to reign on David's throne, and He's been reigning on it now for about 2,000 years. You and I are citizens of that kingdom, the church. We submit to Him. He's the head. He's reigning on David's throne. But in addition to that, could I invite you to notice what incredible hope you and I can have as a result of that resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'd like to read a few of the verses, beginning in verse number 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Let's stop right there. Paul again to the Corinthians matter-of-factly says, Jesus is now risen, but not only that, He is the first fruits of them that slept. Every one of us are going to die if the Lord delays His coming, and every single human that has ever lived, excepting Enoch and Elijah, has done the same. Every one of them. And yet, on that occasion, Paul rather dramatically says, the raising of Jesus, the fact He stood up again, is the first fruits for everybody else. Every one of us are going to stand up again too. Oh, we'll die to be sure if the Lord delays His coming. But just as surely as Jesus stood up again, He was God's guarantee that every one of us will as well, the first fruits. That was the Old Testament presentation in which the Jews were required to bring the first of their crop and offer it to God. And when they did so, it was the offering to Him in part of which was God's guarantee of the remaining harvest that was to follow. Jesus was the first to be raised to die no more, and you and I will follow in, in manner. His raising was God's guarantee of our own. There's going to come a day where you and I are going to be raised. And in the language of John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, it reads like this. Jesus, in powerful presentation, said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. How many, Lord? He said, all. There won't be a single grave left filled. All of them will be emptied. But the Lord went on to say this, They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Only two possible statures or likes, if you please, to that resurrection. Some will be resurrected and they'll stand up again and they'll enjoy a marvelous word from the Master. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter to the joys of thy Lord. But yet to so many others, they too will have stood up again, but it won't be the resurrection to life. It'll be the resurrection to damnation. Because to them they'll hear words like these, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Or to others, I know you not. Again, notice, he will have known them at one time, but they will have dropped into an unfaithful state. And so he will say, I don't know you now. And either way, consign forevermore to hell. Consign forevermore, having been raised to damnation. But as you and I close that slide, how often does the Bible warn us and remind us and encourage us to be wise, to live dedicated to God? For we know that in so doing, His resurrection will be a prelude to our own. 
that we'll be able to rise to that great element in life. How tragic it would be on that day of judgment to have been raised, but raised to damnation, raised to condemnation, raised to eternal separation from the God that loved us enough to die for us, and yet we didn't love Him enough to respond in faith. That's tragic. That's catastrophic. And that's eternal. Let's close this lesson like this. Are you a faithful member of the body of Christ? Am I? If any of us have not then based our life on the resurrection of Christ, there's so much more that could in fact have been said. It is that resurrection that is a likeness of our own baptism. When we rise from that watery grave, we are now alive in Christ. Just like the Lord stood up again, we put the old man of sin to death and we stand up faithful. That's one of the beautiful matters in baptism. Today, if there's anyone that's never become a Christian in this audience, and you know that the Lord died for you, and you know that you're a sinner, and you know that you're lost, don't stay in that condition. Why not come down this aisle in just a minute? Make acknowledgement of your sins and your belief in Christ. As you make confession of those things, we'll be honored to baptize you into Christ. You can, of course, leave this place a faithful Christian. But if you have become a Christian and you have known the blessedness of standing up with Christ, you are spiritually resurrected. But you've begun to live foolishly. You've begun to live half-heartedly. You've begun to live in a way that's not in keeping with the faithfulness of the Word of God. Why not come back to your first love? The Lord hasn't given up on you. You've given up on yourself. It's time to make some changes. That we call repentance. Make acknowledgement of those sins. Confess them. If you'll simply make acknowledgement of them in the way the Bible says, He'll forgive you again. We'll be happy to pray to God on your behalf, and we'll be honored to do it at once. All together we stand and while we sing.